In ancient Greece, there was a famous philosopher named Diogenes the Cynic. And with a name like that, you can already tell he wasn't a happy camper. Diogenes the Cynic. I mean, he lived sort of like a homeless person inside a huge terracotta pot, something that was supposed to be used as a bathtub. And if that's where you slept every night, you'd be cranky too. For Diogenes, it wasn't just that the glass was always half empty. He'd say you were using the wrong glass to begin with. He was cynical, and he put a negative spin on everything, particularly when it came to the politicians, the thought leaders, the cultural heroes of his day. No one escaped his sour rhetoric. Diogenes is like the patron saint of all those who would look at the world through dark-colored glasses. Today, he'd be uh, right in there as a news commentator or an angry blogger, because it's easy to become cynical. To the, it's easy to point out the flaws of others and their mistakes. Much easier to throw stones than to offer positive solutions. What most people remember about Diogenes is that he, was, he had a well-known stunt, a bit of street theater that he used to arouse interest and get people to pay attention to his message. He would walk around the city during the day holding a lamp lit as if it were the middle of the night like someone walking down the street using a flashlight at, at high noon when the sun is at its brightest. doesn't make any sense, right? So when people asked him about it, you know, about the lamp in the broad daylight, Diogenes would say, I'm looking for an honest man. And then he'd go on his way, meaning that he could never find an honest person in all of ancient Greece. And that frustrating quest to find honest politicians and, and cultural leaders, honest people, well, it still goes on today. The prophet Micah shares some things in common with Diogenes the Cynic, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. Micah is one of the minor prophets found in the Old Testament, and his book pretty much follows the pattern of the other prophets that we've been looking at over the last few weeks in our preaching series, God Gives Hope walking in justice, mercy, and humility. Like the other prophets, God put Micah in the uncomfortable position of being the bearer of bad news to the ancient people of Israel. Israel had been cut in half by a savage civil war. They were divided from each other, and they were also divided from God because they actively and intentionally abandoned their faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, completely ignored God's covenant, and God's law, and instead they welcomed in, they invited in the detestable gods of the surrounding nations, gods like Baal and Moloch, whose worship included horrendous things, even child sacrifice and, and other repulsive practices. And God said, that's got to stop. My people cannot go there. That is way out of bounds, and I will wipe you out rather than let that despicable behavior continue, especially while you pretend to follow my ways. The book of Micah is divided into three parts. The, the first three chapters describe the failure of the nation. Same theme as we've seen in the other prophets. But then comes this beautiful section in chapters 4 and 5 that's a vision of the future and a vision of the future one who will restore God's goodness and righteousness. Micah looks forward to the coming of the Christ, the Messiah. And he even names the city where the Savior is going to be born. You've often probably heard this prophecy from Micah cited around Christmas time, Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, from you, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler of Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times." 
Pretty remarkable that Micah names the actual place of the Messiah's birth more than 600 years before it happened when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's the middle section of Micah. The last three chapters show us God pleading with the nation to turn around, to turn away from their destructive and and unjust ways, to turn back to him in repentance, and then to receive his mercy and forgiveness and restoration. But what I love about the book of Micah, what makes Micah stand out from many of the other prophets, is the way that he uses words and the many beautiful and also terrifying images that he creates with his words. Much of Micah is pure poetry, and we don't really get that as much when we read it in the English translation. The beauty, the cleverness of the words gets lost in translation. The subtlety, the artistry of his language, you can't really feel it when it's translated into English, and that's generally true whenever you translate anything from one language to another, especially humor, especially puns or plays on words, and Micah was the master of that. So I want to give you a taste of how Micah used puns and word plays to communicate his message just in chapter 1. I can't do the whole book this morning. So we're just going to look about a short section of how he uses language in chapter 1. And I wanted to look at this because, because there's a way that it can have a big impact on your relationship with God today. Micah doesn't just have a message for the past. His words are going to hit home as we think about our relationship with God too. It starts with Micah's name. Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morshath. We've talked about how important names are in the Bible. For example, Peter means the rock, and he became the foundation of the New Testament church. Micah's name is actually a question. His name means, who is like the Lord? Who is like Yahweh? In that way, Micah is a little bit like Diogenes because Micah, by virtue of his name, is constantly searching to find not an honest man, but a righteous person, someone who is like the Lord, someone who is sincerely seeking God. That's the journey that he's on. Wherever he went, anybody here seeking the Lord? Anybody here like the Lord? In chapter 1, you have to imagine him going on a journey through all the towns of Israel in search of someone who is sincerely seeking God. Starting in verse 10, he mentions 10 different cities and towns in the search that he goes on for someone who is like the Lord. And the way God's judgment is going to come on that city unless they turn around and turn back to God. And I'll bet his name kind of preceded him. People knew about Micah. You can imagine people looking around as Micah, you know, comes up the street saying to themselves, oh great, here comes old who is like God. Now, Micah's quest and question, who is like God, it's really a rhetorical question because by the end of the book in chapter 7, verse 18, he says this to God, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show your love to Abraham as you pledged an oath to our ancestors in days long ago. The answer to his question is no one. No one is a God like Yahweh. And you know what? That's just what we need. We need him to be a God of pardon, a God of forgiveness, a God who delights in showing mercy. If we could be like him, we wouldn't need any of that. 
if we could be righteous on our own, if we were righteous and good and we got a really shiny halo over our heads all on our own, then we didn't, wouldn't need the mercy of the Messiah. It's precisely because we are not like God that we're not 100% sincere in our faith. That's why we need his grace. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Romans 3, verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. And dropping down to verse 22, 23. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. Micah's quest to find that person who is like God was intended to shake people up and push them towards the grace of the coming Messiah. Push them toward God's mercy as they discover for themselves that they are nowhere near like God in their own attempts to be, you know, good enough. They have to realize the depth of their own sin and then turn towards God, throw themselves into the mercy of him. That was a prophet's job, to to dramatically confront people with the true nature of their situation and get them to turn towards God in repentance and humility. And then to honor God through living a life that reflected his nature of justice and love. My wife Donna is speaking on a women's retreat for a church in Pennsylvania this weekend. And in her research she did for her talk, she reminded me of a Latin phrase coined by St. Augustine, used by the Protestant reformers like Luther and Calvin, to describe this condition that we are all in in relation to, to God. And excuse my poor Latin, but the phrase is, Incurvatus in se. Incurvatus in se. It means to be turned or curved in on oneself. Instead of being towards God, we're turned in, curled inward on ourselves, almost like a permanent fetal position. Whatever gifts God has given us, this life, our health, our minds, our intellect, our talents, our relationships, our wealth, whatever God has given, we find a way to put ourselves in the center and turn all of life in on us. We become the center God's on the periphery. We are the sun of our solar system, and and God is a distant planet that rotates around us. And when we do that, when we substitute something else at the center, it's usually self. We see that sin at its essence is always that slippery slope of me, 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 self at the center. And the result of this inward turning is not just a separation from God, but also the damage we do to ourselves and our world, isolation, depression, anxiety, narcissism, addiction, exploitation, fear, greed, violence, injustice. Where once there was purpose and, and belonging and hope, there is now this gnawing vode, incurvatus in say. Man turned in on himself gives shape to our brokenness. Because humans don't fare well when no one's in charge, the void must be filled. So now, in lieu of God, we find ourselves subject to the worldview of whichever ambitious God wannabes clamor to the top first. We ignore our true selves, who God wants us to be, because we're actually trying to be one of those God wannabes in our day, creating even more anxiety and disorder. And in our day, kind of enter the smartphone, gaming, Facebook, Tinder, Snapchat, a few thousand other apps per week, all to kind of help us cope with our anxiety, our quest to control, all all drawing us further into ourselves. Uh, I'll shut it off in just a few minutes, away from the needs of real and, and often demanding other people right in our midst. This is one of the faces of sin 
how it's lived out in the 21st century. And I don't think you even need a preacher or a Bible or a church to see it because we already know it. This kind of anxiety is just written on people's hearts. We can see it every day. The more we turn in on ourselves to increase our sense of control or avoid the myriad of sufferings that's out there, the more we become a slave to that seeking and avoiding. In the light of this turning into self, it's Jesus who promises we'll know the truth and the truth will set us free. He speaks into the small places of our hearts and he says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He watches over us even as we reject him, as we turn inward again and again and again, issuing the same invitation that he's made to every man and woman and child. Whoever came before us, he'll make the same invitation to all who will come after us. The same invitation as the prophets through whom God said, turn back to me with all your heart. Joel 2.2, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other, Isaiah 45.22. And so it was with that message that Micah goes on a journey through the ten cities and towns in ancient Israel. Now we don't know if he did this personally and physically, if he walked actually from town to town to deliver his message, or if his recent written message was simply shared throughout the land, we don't know. What we do know is that he delivers a very clever, very witty, devastating, pun-filled message to these ten cities. And he starts by naming various towns, and then he makes a pun or a play on words about each of their names and those places. Look quickly at chapter 1 with me, and I'll be reading in the NIV translation. Micah is talking about this coming judgment of God, and he says it in verse 10. He says, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all, in Beth Ophrah, Roll in the dust. Now the word gath literally means to weep, and the prophet plays on that name. The bad news of God's judgment is coming, and it's too late to cry about it now. So don't waste your tears. The second town, Beth Ophrah, means house of dust, and I, I'll bet it went that it, this was a desert place. Micah tells them to go ahead and just roll in the dust, cover your head, cover your body with dirt. That was a sign of deep grieving and deep repentance in the Old Testament times. That's how you showed deep remorse was to pour dirt on your head. So Micah's telling them to live up to their name, go ahead, dust town, roll yourself in the dust. Then verse 11, three more towns are mentioned. Pass by naked and in shame, you live in Saphir. Those who live in Zanon will not come out. Beth Ezel is in mourning. It no longer protects you. Saphir means beautiful or pleasant to look at. And it would describe people who kind of take confidence in their good looks, their physical appearance. And Micah says they're going to be the ones who are physically exposed and shamed. It's what the narcissistic person fears most, to be exposed for who they really are. The next town, Zanon, means to go out in battle. These are people who are confident in the strength of their military. And Micah says that they won't even make it out the front gate. Don't even try. Your army isn't going to do you any good. Beth Ezel means a house by the side of another house. In other words, a really good neighbor that you can count on for help when you need it. And Micah is warning them that their neighbors are not going to be there to help them when the foreign armies come. When the chips are down... You're going to be on your own. In beauty town, beauty will be shamed. In marching town, they won't make it out alive. In neighbor town, they're going to end up with lousy neighbors. You see how this is going? Verses 12 and 13, those who live in Maroth 
writhe in pain, waiting for relief because disaster has come from the Lord, even to the gate of Jerusalem. You who live in Lachish, harness fast horses to the chariot. You who are the sin of daughter Zion began, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Maroth sounds like the Hebrew word for bitter. And Micah tells them they're going to writhe and pain and relief will not come. I've been suffering from shingles for the past few weeks, so I think to a small degree I know what that feels like. No relief. Lachish means a a horse-drawn chariot. Another town confident in its military strength. And Micah says, you know what, you are just a one-horse town. Verse 14. Therefore you will give parting gifts to Mosheth Gath. The town of Akzib will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. Morsheth Gath, which was Micah's hometown, this name sounds similar to the word for a wedding gift, the special gift given to a bride as she leaves the marriage ceremony, like a dowry. Micah is warning that their gifts are going to be given to the conquering Assyrians. Akzib is similar to the word for being deceptive or lying or unreliable, and so when push comes to shove, they will show themselves to be nothing but a pack of liars. And Micah wraps up this town tour in verse 15. I will bring a conqueror against you who live in Marsha. The nobles of Israel will flee to Abdullam. Marsha is a word similar to the word to possess or conquer. And Micah's warning them that these possessors will be possessed. These conquerors are going to be conquered. All of these places, all of these people are in trouble because God is going to come to their town And he's going to find that their hearts are cold and hard and indifferent towards the things of God. That's the stark warning of Micah. But then his words about the coming Messiah in chapters 4 and 5 make it clear that it didn't have to be this way. If they had softened their hearts toward the Lord, if they had recognized the gravity of their incurvatus inse, their turning inward on themselves, then the Messiah would come with a completely different message. And you know what? Jesus actually went to these towns. To the town of weeping, he would speak Psalm 126. Those who sow with tears will reap songs of joy. That's what Messiah does. He comforts our sorrows. To dust town, Jesus, I think, would speak John 7, 38. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. He refreshes those who are dried out inside. For those in beauty town who trusted in their external appearance, he would say, true beauty is really from within because that's where God is, Psalm 50. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. You could go through all ten of these cities and see how the opposite could have happened for them if they had turned to the Lord and not turned in on themselves. The Messiah God was waiting, who pardons sin, who forgives, who has compassion, who throws all our sins into the depths of the sea. That's what the Messiah does. And here's the most important thing for you to hear this morning. What town are you living in? What town are you living in today, right now? What what town are you living in? Dust town or bitter town like the people of Micah? Where are you living right now? How would you name where you are in your life and your relationship with God if it was a city? Are you in frantic town where your life is ruled by your overpacked schedule and all you can do is complain about how busy you are? Are you living in Excuseville because you're constantly making excuses about your life and faith and commitment to Christ? Do you live in complacent city 
where you're satisfied just to take care of yourself and your family and you don't have any room in your heart for the needs of others or the demands Christ might make on your life? Do you live in, do you live in Fearville because your thoughts are filled with anxiety about your future? Do you live in, in Moneytown because you've placed your identity and security in your finances? Do you live in Status City because your focus is on the size of your house or what college your kids will go to? What town do you live in? And what difference would it make if Messiah came to your town? What would be his word to you? How might he confront your wandering and wayward heart? How might his truth be a slap in the face, a wake-up call to where your life is headed and the things that you really value? How might he confront the place where you live? And how might he comfort you? How might he transform your fears and anxieties into peace and a better perspective of life? How might he transform your incurvatus insay, your turning in on yourself? How he might transform that into a turning towards Christ and to the goodness of his grace? You see, Micah's words are not just for the ancient people. He holds up a mirror to our lives too. And he calls us to be sincere seekers after God, to live lives that reflect the goodness and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. We begin to take on God's character. Micah 6.8, what, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Micah's challenge, be a sincere seeker of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, it's easy for us just to kind of settle into a certain town. That becomes our narrative. It becomes the way we describe our lives. It becomes the place where, where we just get stuck. It's the rut that we're in, and we can name it in a lot of different ways. And then you come to town. And just like when you came to towns in the New Testament, things got turned upside down. You flipped tables. You challenged people. You confronted, and you also comforted and pointed people in a new direction in your grace. And I pray that you would do that for each one of us this morning. Whatever town we're in, may we invite you in and listen to how you might confront and comfort each one of us. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.